and welcome to the Religion and Popular Culture podcast, the podcast where we talk about religion, popular culture, and everything in between. I am your sociologist with the mostiologist, Alan Thomas, and I am joined by our anthropomologist, Vivian Asimos. Vivian, how are you? I'm good. <laughs> I nailed that intro today, didn't you I? You did. It was very good. It's been a while for you. <laughs> it, it, it's been a long while since I... Well, it's been a long while since I did an intro, and it's also been a long while since I nailed an intro. So. <laughs> I, was like, I used to put some of your flubs at the end of an episode, and then it got to be so many times that I couldn't do it every the, single yeah, episode. Yeah, it, it's just... Oh, gosh. I, yeah, I really did used to mess it up. But I, I think, like a fine wine or a fine cheese... I get better with age, and so does my ability to introduce a podcast. So, this week, we are discussing The Umbrella Academy, but more specifically, Season 2 of The Umbrella Academy, which has a subplot in it that I find both very amusing and very interesting. Um, So, for those of you who aren't aware, uh, The Umbrella Academy is... Well, what we're talking about is the Netflix show. Um, which you can go and stream now. There's three seasons of it. It's really great. I really recommend it. Um, it is based on a comic book by Gerard Way and Gabriel Barr. Um, Gerard Way, of course, is also the frontman of My Chemical Romance. More um, importantly. <laughs> well, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, yes, I think more importantly, because I'm a My Chemical Romance fan. But he's... Um, he's just one of those obscenely talented people who just it seems to be able to just turn his attention or his hand he's a renaissance man yeah he's just really good at everything he does and i know (laughs) he's an emo renaissance man (laughs) he is i mean i i know very little about comic books um but i know a good few people who are really into comic books who really hold his writing in high regard and it's not because they're biased my chem fans Uh, in fact i've spoken to a few people who've just not heard my chemical romance at all but they really love his comic book writing. Yeah, I, I know. I, I find it weird as well when people say they haven't heard them, but whatever. Um, <laughs> but yeah, they really do like his comic book writing. Uh, the interesting thing about him is is that he was a comic book writer first. That was just what he was doing before he started My Chemical Romance. So it's not something that he as a celebrity musician just turned to because he's famous now and you know when a musician publishes a book and something like that and you think you've only got this deal because you're famous for doing something else does do you feel a bit salty i i do feel a little bit salty <laughs> about that i will say um but whereas with Gerard Way, he has the talent, he has the credentials and the experience to back it up. He was a comic book writer before he started My Chemical Romance, and then he just kind of went back to it during My Chem, and then during the um, the years when they'd broken up. The hiatus years, there we go. Anyway, back to my point. It's a, it's a really popular comic book series. Uh, if you go into a comic book shop, there's a good chance that you'll find... Umbrella Academy volumes, merchandise, t-shirts, and so on. Uh, the comic has a lot of really great imagery, which translates really well to um, uh, to merchandise, especially the image of the umbrella, the mm-hmm. logo of the Umbrella Academy. Um, I have been considering, and I probably will do it, getting the umbrella tattooed on my wrist, because the main characters from the Umbrella Academy have the logo tattooed on their wrists, and they were all born in 1989. And I was born in 1989. So um, 
Um, I've got many tattoo ideas, but that is on the to-do list. I will probably get that done one day. Um, but we're talking about the Netflix series today. And uh, there's, as I was saying, there's three seasons of it so far. And the gist of the show is that on an ordinary day in October of 1989, um, I think the number is 12. 12 women around the world spontaneously give birth. That's... And- my nightmare. Can I tell you, well, I had to fast forward through this bit. I, yeah, <laughs> I was wondering, I, I, just to warn you, when you get to season three, they go back to that day, as in, not the characters, there's there's a flashback to that day, and it's, um, you would find, I don't want to say a, a scene of somebody giving birth is graphic, but for you, Vivian, it would be graphic. Yeah. Um, you read, you really just, just for see... people listening, I, I have um, tocophobia, which is a fear of pregnancy. I'm not just yeah. like... Uh, thinking that pregnant women are gross or something (laughs) no 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 of course yeah yeah absolutely um so and yeah at the beginning of season three you really get to see the anxiety and the sheer panic for this woman who was throughout that day just going about her life not pregnant who is all of a sudden just giving birth so yeah these these women give birth at the same time on the same day and um we don't entirely know exactly why yet. The show is clearly building up to telling us that. Um, and of course, the comic book series is still ongoing as well. But babies are born. And the babies have superpowers, because of course they do. And seven of them are adopted by Reginald Hargreaves, who's this eccentric billionaire guy. And uh, he adopts the kids and he turns them into a crime-fighting family called the Umbrella Academy. And he gives them a really terrible childhood where he treats them as experiments and purely wants to breed them into this super-duper crime-fighting team whilst neglecting what children need in terms of, you know, emotional nourishment and um, just learning about the wider world. So... Perhaps unsurprisingly, the kids get older and they rebel against the father and they all move out, apart from one. And when the father then dies, oh yeah, he, he is their father as well because he adopts them, but yeah. he's a re- re- he's not what you would expect from a father. Um, when Reginald dies, they all get back together for the uh, funeral. This is the beginning of season one, the beginning of the story. And they're completely dysfunctional, they're grown up, and the gist is is that they're all messed up because of the childhood that they had. Um, And of course then, super duper things start happening, and they have to be superheroes again, but in a very dysfunctional uh, kind of way. So on on the one hand, it's a superhero story, on the other hand, it's a story about family, and uh, family trauma, and having to reconnect with people many years after you last saw them. Lots of issues that many of us can relate to in different ways. And today I want to talk about season two, in which um, the, the family, in ad- the Umbrella Academy, inadvertently end up in the 1960s. And there's a lot of really interesting... They really use the fact that they're in ni- the 1960s to um, to do some really interesting stories. Alison, for example, who is a person of colour, goes from the 21st century to 1960s Texas 
and she becomes part of um, the black rights movement and so on. There's some really interesting storylines uh, around that. And um, Klaus, who we're talking about today, Klaus is my favourite character. You may be not surprised at all to hear. Um, Klaus is very much the comedy character. He's the comic relief, but he is still a really interesting character in his own right. Uh, he starts a cult. And it's perhaps unsurprising that he does. He's a very charismatic guy. Um, he's very whimsical. He's very camp. And he has quite a magnetic personality. Well, and he's also and, got... I don't know if I'm jumping ahead a little bit, so I'm sorry if I am. But I, yeah. from what I remember, because I only saw season one and then I saw a couple of clips in order to prep for talking about this episode. Mm-hmm. But in season one, and I can't remember how, but he fought in Vietnam. Yes. Yeah. He, he fought in Vietnam because he opened a suitcase and the oh, suitcase that's right. t- and the suitcase took him back to Vietnam. That's right. He like lived a whole life because of this weird thing and it like took place in like one episode and then he just had to yeah. keep going back to normal life. But yeah. um in that bit he fought in Vietnam and so he saw a lot of the horrors of of that war in particular as well as war mm. more generally and and lost someone who he loved mm. that mm. was also fighting alongside him mm-hmm. and so I, I thought that it also made sense that he would start, you know, one of those very peace-loving cults in the 1960s yeah. when this was starting to become a much yeah. bigger issue yeah. in America. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the, the, the cult that he starts, um, and I'm calling it a cult because that's how it's defined in the TV show, the new religious movement that he begins. Um, it's clearly a parody of movements like ISKCON, International Society for Krishna Consciousness and the Raelians. So Klaus adopts your classic cult leader look. He's wearing all white, long flowing robes. He has long hair in this season and a beard. And as Vivian was saying, he's very hippie. Mm -hmm. Um, Everything's about love. The imagery of uh, his group is flowers, you know, flower power, that kind of thing. Um, very, um, Very much an example of how um, the 1960s hippie generation did have a fascination with Indian culture. Yeah. Um, it, it definitely reminds me of the Beatles' fascination with um, um, with Iskon, for example, particularly George Harrison's, the time they spent um, in India doing transcendental meditation. Um, it's, that, it's that kind of thing. Um, but there is a heartfelt element to this story because as Vivian was saying, he lost someone in season one in the time that he spent in Vietnam. And then when he ends up in the sixties, he's in the years building up to it. And he tries to use that. I don't know if this was in the clips that you saw Vivian. He tries to use that time to meet the guy again and convince him to not sign up with the Mm -hmm. army because he knows that if he signs up with the army, he'll die. But of course, from the perspective of this of this young guy, he has no idea who Klaus is. Klaus is this weird local cult leader, and he's being pressured to join the military by his heteronormative, homophobic uncle. And, uh, of course, the uncle can see that a visibly queer man is attempting to stop his nephew from joining the military, which puts even more pressure on Dave, who's the name of this character, puts more pressure Mm -hmm. on Dave to join the military. And um, overall, it it is just a a really sad story because Klaus does completely fail to stop him from joining the military and he just has to come to terms with that. 
Um, but the cult side is often treated very humorously. He gathers a mass of followers because they don't realise that he has superpowers. Or rather, they think he does have superpowers, but not what it actually is. So um, Klaus's superpower is that he can see and interact with dead people. Um, also in uh, in the TV show, he has abilities... Oh, I, uh, in the TV show, he has another ability in the comic book that isn't coming back to me. But his ability is, is that he can speak to dead people. And the person that he speaks to the most from beyond the grave is Ben, one of the Umbrella Academy siblings who died when he was young. So you, Ben is in the show throughout, but it's only Klaus that can speak to him and see him. The other characters can't. And so it leads to some humorous moments where he pretends that Ben isn't there or pretends that Ben is there and 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 so forth. So he convinces a group of people that he's able to levitate because Ben picks him up. And because Ben is picking him up, they think he has this superpower, this divine ability to do something. And then that then makes people are drawn to him because they feel that he's been sent on a special mission. Um, but what I find really interesting about it is that he does have a superpower. He can speak to dead people and he can get a dead person to lift him up. So there's this really funny scene where we as the audience can see Ben picking Klaus up. But from the perspective of everyone in the room, it just looks like Klaus is levitating. Um, but he does actually have a superpower. <laughs> it's just not the one that his followers think that he has. So he becomes the uh, classical cult leader. Did you see this stuff, Vivian, in the clips? That yeah, you saw? so um, I, I watched... All of season one, so I kind of got a gist. But it's it's been a while, so I kind of was also reminded of of his character and stuff. And then um, I saw two different YouTube videos that were just the best of Klaus season two clips. So I got which is to pretty see... much everything that he did. Yeah, so every, there was a, a lot of overlap. Um, but yeah. like one of them was like twelve minutes long, and I'm like, I think this is just every scene that Klaus is in this season. Like, yeah. He's um, he's a very popular character, and I think with good reason. He's very well written. Yeah, he's so very well performed. When I watched the first season, and I, 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 this was one of those shows that I watched while I was working. So, um, mm. a, a lot of the times with it, there's a small grain of salt because I'm not always paying one hundred percent attention to a show. It is the kind of show that moves really quickly. Yeah, and um, but it's one of the ones that Tom wasn't, in, my husband wasn't interested in watching, and so therefore I find other times to watch things. Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't remember it being very funny the first season. And again, I don't know whether it's because I wasn't really paying massive attention, and when it was funny, it was because of Klaus. But it always felt like it was... Have you ever seen those movies that are like trying too hard to throw in a comic relief bit? And then so you're yes. just looking at it and you're like, well, that okay. Like mm. it it felt like that to me at the time. I've heard I've heard people say that about Gimli and Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I could see that. I, 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 I don't agree because I like Gimli and I like the comic relief he brings to the table, but I I can see I the can point. see it. Yeah. I, I think that's how I felt with season one. Watching just the clips of season two, it feels like a like a completely different show. Oh, yeah, it is. They end up in a completely different environment. But not just that. It's, I think because I was only watching his bits, 
it was a genuinely funny, it wasn't just like someone cracking a joke at a bad time and you're like, well, that wasn't even a funny joke. Like, it yeah, was... Yeah, his narrative is very amusing. His narrative is in... But the way he also handles it is a bit silly as well. Mm. And um, I, I, you might talk about this, but in the, the cult is always asking him about words of wisdom and he just quotes like, um, like 90s and, and 2000s like music. Yeah. yeah. Um, and my favorite was him saying, uh, don't go chasing waterfalls, waterfalls, stick to the rivers and the lakes like you're used to. Used and he's like, to. that's deep. <laughs> that, that's, that's his core teaching, isn't it? Um, yeah, so he's taking 90s lyrics that obviously his followers aren't aware of because they're in the 1960s and making them sound really deep and meaningful. Yeah. His cult is called Destiny's Children. As well, <laughs> I didn't know that one. <laughs> um, so th- there's there's a really funny moment where they're all gathered around him, attempting to touch him because, of course, he's special. Um, and he raises his hands into the air, and he and he just yells, "Destiny's children!" And they all raise their hands in the air at the same time. It's it's really funny. Um, the way that they find out that so the family ends up in the sixties, and they're completely torn apart. They don't arrive at the same time they don't arrive together. So they spend most of the season having their own individual lives. They're stuck in the 60s. They're trying to make the best of it. Um, and they don't know that the others are there. And Alison finds... The penny drops for her that the others may be there when she meets one of Klaus's followers in prison. And she notices that uh, this guy has hello and goodbye tattooed onto his hands which Klaus does, and it's a very unusual tattoo to have. So she asks him where he got those from, and she finds out that there's this spiritual guru, this leader that has... What I find really funny is that he lives in a mansion. So many of the charismatic leaders associated with new religions from that period bought mansions with the money that they had. I mean, I've even had a tour of L. Ron Hubbard's mansion, um, which was really cool, by the way. Um... (laughs) But there's there's always a mansion. It's like a cliche. Um, but maybe I should be a bit of a, a um, sociologist now because what sociologists love to do is identify patterns. Yes, please do. And um, let's identify some patterns here. So the be mansion the sociologist is a... with the most eologist. Yeah, yeah. So so the pattern. So the mansion is a pattern, but that's a bit more of a joke. What is a pattern with new religious movements is the charismatic leader. This is what Klaus is a parody of in this show. And we've spoken about cults and new religions previously with the Mary Cosby. Mm-hmm. Was it Real Housewives of Salt Real Housewives City? of Salt Lake City. Real Housewives um, of Salt Mary Lake City. Mary Cosby is unfortunately no longer on the show. Oh, damn, um, really? Which is a shame because she was one of my favourite people yeah. on that show. Um, but in season... One, there was hints about stuff going on with a church that she led and um, or continues to still lead. To be honest, I stopped following her as soon as she stopped being on the show. And then um, in season two, one of the storylines was the fact that people, while the show was airing, were talking about the fact that Mary Cosby's church was actually a cult. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at the time that we recorded, it was before season two came out, but I knew it was going to be a storyline. And I had heard all of the allegations. And so yeah, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. when we covered it. So we didn't get to cover season two of it. I was going to do it. And then when I realized she wasn't on the show anymore, it didn't really feel like it was useful. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think what what we what was really enjoyable about that discussion is we really broke down how 
a cult and a religion is essentially just in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. Um, so what I thought would be fun with Klaus is we could talk about the typologies of a new religious movement and specifically the typology of the charismatic leader. So, 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 um, so the uh, prerequisite course is the <laughs> yes. Salt Lake so City please, episode so, from last so season. Please, yeah, please refer to that for other cultic discussions. <laughs> um, but what I think is really important to note is not every new religion has a charismatic leader. I think sometimes we've put such an emphasis on charisma that um, there's an assumption that there's a charismatic leader. If you look at various new age movements, for example, and even just the rise of spiritual but not religious, which I would categorize under new forms of religiosity, char- charisma and charismatic leaders don't play a part in that. But they are still important and they're not new to new religions. Mm-hmm. You look at the so-called world religions and you can see your charismatic leaders. You've got your Siddhartha Gautama, your Jesus of Nazareth and so on. But... Um, there's there's a quote from Eileen Barker, which I have quoted so many times that I can't word it, uh, remember it word by word, but I can paraphrase it. She says something along the lines of, when somebody typically thinks of charisma, they may think of a pop star. And yeah, before I started um, doing religious studies at uni, I understood charisma in terms of Freddie Mercury, the ability of a pop star to command an audience. But for sociologists, she says it's different. For sociologists, it's the idea of an individual who has the ability to command a group or have a level of authority in the group because the group perceives them to be special, potentially divine, or has access to an esoteric knowledge that no one else has. So in other words, there's something about this one specific person that makes them worthy of following, uh, makes them worthy of dedicating their lives to, and also can make them worthy of giving up everything in their previous lives in order to follow. A lot of people join new religious movements and they completely leave behind their previous life, employment, family relations, and so on. And that's, of course, where the controversy of whether they've joined a cult comes in or not, because it's such a radical shift in one's lifestyle that it can be alarming for people uh, on the outside. Um, Sociologists of religion have basically inherited this module. module. (laughs) You can tell I'm teaching at the moment. Sociologists of religion have essentially inherited this model from Weber, um, Max Weber was the one who really pioneered the sociological understanding of charisma. Before <clears throat> other frameworks are available. <laughs> Before you um, <laughs> dig into Weber, yes, please do because um, it's going to get really boring when I do that. Yeah. <laughs> I'll stop. I'll be not like your students and tell you to shut up in the middle of your lecture. Um, yeah. No, I, I, I would be interested with that quote from Eileen Barker. Mm-hmm. Um, I would be interested how much that still holds up. Well, yes, because I, I wanted, I want, I, there is something that I wanted yeah. to mention about that in relation to Weber, because I know where you're going to go with this. Are you going to talk about the internet and pop culture? I mean, I'm going to talk about a lot of things. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> obviously Shoot. also 2016 happened. Um, but I, because I think the thing is, is that Eileen Barker, not to put her two on the spot, but she is a bit old. And, um... And and so when she was writing, this was a long time ago, where pop yeah. stars would be the only kind of primary reference for charisma. You would be thinking about Elvis, you know what I mean? Like, that's where your brain would go. But I think nowadays, mm-hmm. I think if you said something about someone being charismatic, 
Mm-hmm. I think a lot more of the general population would have way more examples in their head, and a lot of them would probably be more political than oh, this pop is such star. A, this is such a beautiful segue to a book that I've got coming out next year. Oh. <laughs> Which, Fantastic. Which is, it's like I planned it. It's like you planned it. It's almost like you're in the book as well. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm currently editing a book with Ed Graham Hyde about how people understand cults in the 21st century. And part of our thesis is that cults and discussions around cults are not religious anymore. They're hybrids. They're hybrids of politics and religion. You mentioned 2016 happened. You're, of course, referring to Trump. Yes. Um, you, of course, could be referring to Brexit as yes. well, which also comes <laughs> I was about to say, there's, there's uh, a couple of things in that list. Yeah, um, I'm thinking of that, um, that Frankie Boyle joke when he said that David Bowie was a trendsetter. He always seemed to know what the next big thing was going to be, which is why at the beginning of 2016, he died. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I... 2016 was a year, wasn't it? Um, Yeah, Trump is a really interesting, charismatic leader. He is a charismatic leader. And something that's important to remember here is charisma isn't an endorsement. Yes. It's a category. I I was going to say, um, but I didn't know how to say this without it sounding like I'm endorsing this human being. Um, But I was at um, a museum for the Holocaust, I think in Washington, D.C., um is so just to try to pin it down and they had in this one room they had uh, a couple of screens that were playing a speech that hitler was giving and Mm. i don't speak Mm -hmm. german it was obviously in german because i mean and so and it there was something about it where i was like i could see why people would listen to this guy yeah he had this like mm. way of speaking and this way of moving and being passionate mm. but still eloquent i mean i don't know if it was eloquent i, I, and also, was, I couldn't and also hear but tapping into um tapping into issues exactly and tapping into the followers. spirit and the issues and the fears of, of yeah. individuals and that's what he was listening to and that's what he was speaking to and that's what people were grabbing onto and it was one of those moments of going oh shit like i get it and mm. and I think that's why when Trump was going on, I went, "Oh shit!" <laughs> yeah, yeah, <absolutely. laughs> I get it. Like, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and um, I you know just to do like a quick plug, I think this is why anthropology and sociology, particularly, but I think other forms of humanities and social sciences, particularly ones that do field work, can be incredibly mm. important because we learn that the way that people react is because of reasons. So the way, the reason why someone is homophobic, there's a reason for it. The reason why yeah. someone's racist, there's a reason yeah, for yeah, it. Yeah. And so therefore to get people to stop being xenophobic, to stop being racist, to stop being homophobic, mm. isn't to tackle the surface level homophobia and hate. It's to tackle those underlying issues and fears. And the things that some of these people are doing is they're doing it the opposite direction. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the reason people believe in things that, others may think are bizarre, believe in things that are harmful and so on. It, it's incredibly complicated. It depends on their economic backgrounds, mm-hmm. their cultural background and so on. Um, so Stephen Hassan, who is one of the most renowned anti-cult experts, has recently published a book called The Cult of Trump, in which he argues that Trump has brainwashed his followers, um, which I personally think is quite a weak argument Mm -hmm. that doesn't take into consideration a wide number of issues as to why somebody voted for Trump or supported Trump. 
um, Susanna Crockford's written about this really well. Um, she's argued that um, suggesting that Trump has brainwashed his followers into mindlessly believing things and mindlessly doing things essentially absolves the Republican Party and America at large of its white supremacy. Yeah. That it pos- it positions Trump as an aberration, whereas and- Trump isn't Trump isn't the disease, Trump is the symptom. Yeah, I was just about to say, it, it's that thing of, as much as he was able to stoke the fires of a lot of things, he was just stoking the fire. He wasn't the it fire. It was already, absolutely, it was already there. And, and, and that fire, what started that fire, is a hugely complex range of political, religious, and social issues. Um, and that's why proper on our higher horses now but that's why the socio-anthropological study of society and the humanities in general is so damn important and i know that if you're listening to this podcast we are preaching to the choir because who the we hell re- else would download yeah, the religion yeah, and you, popular we, culture we really podcast but... but but sometimes it is important to remember that there is a value to what we do yeah and even this conversation about the umbrella academy and klaus you know it's it's a very amusing storyline. It makes me laugh a lot, but it does allow us to unpack the frameworks and um, the issues at play for a wide range of issues. You know, we were just talking about Klaus five minutes ago having hello and goodbye tattooed on his hands. Yeah. And then we were talking about essentially a series of processes that resulted in the capital attack. Yeah. You know, so all these issues filter into each other. And that's also why the study of pop culture is important. Yes, because it gives us the way to talk about these things and it gives you examples and and it it means that you have ways of communicating things in Mm. ways that are effective. And also writers, people like Gerard Way, are able to make points about things that are very poignant in society through pop culture and access to... Yeah, I I see a lot of him in Klaus because Klaus is obviously uh, suffering from addiction and uh, you know attempted to be clean and all and Jared Way also you know um in during the three cheers for sweet revenge era of my chemical as he got clean and so on there's a lot of my chem songs that tap into his experience of his of addiction you know he's clearly channeling himself into a lot of these characters mm-hmm. um but Back to Vava. Sorry. I'm sorry moment. to take you no, off. No, 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 no. You've, you've actually summed up something really important here because something that doesn't get discussed much around Weber's theory of charisma is the idea of endowment. In other words, a charismatic leader isn't born with it. It's not Maybelline. Charisma is a... Thank you for laughing. I made that joke the other day to my students and nobody cracked a smile. I thought it was really funny. Maybe it's a bit I'm of a sorry, dated You also reference. got me right as I was drinking water, so I yeah, wasn't able to... Yeah, that is true. That is true, so I timed it perfectly. Um, yeah, somebody isn't born charismatic. Char- charisma is a social construction in and of itself. I guess it's what it would be what Dirk Heimlet classes a social fact. But um, Weber argued that your charismatic leader is endowed with charisma by the followers. They are only a charismatic leader because the followers say that they are, because the followers see them as being valuable. The followers see them as somebody worthy of their adoration, of their attention, of their time. So without the followers, they're nothing. But the interesting dynamic here is the the charismatic leader rarely ever sees that. So if we apply this to Trump for a moment, 
I do not think Trump believes for a second that his popularity is in doubt, that he is granted it by other people. I am pretty sure that that narcissist would be utterly convinced of his own brilliance. And the reason he's charismatic is because he's so damn brilliant at everything and he has that natural ability to command an audience. He doesn't. As you, as we were saying, he commanded an audience because he very effectively, or his team very effectively, got him to tap into social issues and ideas and forms of white supremacy and so forth that resonated with the audience that he was trying to appeal to. He is endowed with charisma because his followers see it in him. So the charismatic leader has a duty and the duty is to not just lead their followers, but to maintain the charisma. They can lose it. And um, and when that happens, the movement also falls apart. Um, so what I find quite funny about the Umbrella Academy, and I don't know if this is in the clips that you saw, is eventually Klaus is convinced by Ben that this cult business is out of control and he needs to stop it. He has people living in a manner that he has. Again, he's fitting that criticism of a cult leader, of somebody who's duplicitously getting his followers to believe in stuff that he's very flagrantly made up. He's stolen lyrics from 90s songs and whatnot. Um... So there's a moment where he attempts to lose the charisma himself. He gathers them into a room and tells them, I'm a fraud. Was this in the clips that you saw? I, I saw a bit of this, yeah. Yeah. And his followers think, well, he's an absolute genius. I'm a fraud too. He's doing this incredibly selfless act of just noting how flawed we are as human beings. So his followers start standing up and saying, I'm a fraud too. I'm a fraud too. And, and they just think he's out. But he's saying to them, no, 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 I've lied to you. This movement is just based on lies. And um, so it's definitely fitting that framework of a cult being something where one individual person is tricking everyone to believe these things for their own personal gain. Um, but the group just isn't buying it. And in the end, he just has to run away from them. <laughs> Literally run away. And there's a really funny... Um, moment at the beginning of the show because the show, the season begins with him running away from the cult as well. I think he just found his followers a bit much and he ends up going back to the manor and they find him. They're there and he just has this awful moment of, oh god these people won't leave me alone. These people are utterly devoted to him. They really do fit that model of your devoted, I don't want to say brainwashed uh, your devoted followers who will just see everything he does as being some sort of divine intervention. And that's why the really terrible attempts at using 90s pop lyrics as teachings just gels really well with them. I find that really funny. Um, so, yeah, the idea of endowed charisma is interesting because... The leader never sees it that way. And I guess we, we I, I've got to mention it if I have mentioned Faber, but we don't see this in Umbrella Academy because he runs away from the movement. We never see them again. Um, but Faber argued that a charismatic leader will very rarely, if ever, be replaced after death by somebody equally charismatic. Because typically they will be followed by a follower. Mm. Somebody will take over because they're in a position of authority. So he argues that it's become routinized. 
that there's an office of charisma. So the charisma of the founder, the leader, becomes embodied in bureaucracy. So in the Church of Scientology, it's the Religious Technology Centre, which controls the tech in Scientology. That is a institutional embodiment of L. Ron Hubbard as a charismatic leader. But of course, the internet has blown this wide open because people don't have to belong to an institution now to practice something, especially if it's online. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've argued in my own work that routinization has broken down. There's different approaches to this because... Um, um, Beth Singler's also discussed the idea of charisma of ideas. So the ideas in an online space have charisma. So the, um, Weber's ideas could be seen there, perhaps. Um, so I've got to mention it, but it doesn't really play a part in Umbrella Academy. We don't see... <laughs> it would be quite fun if... Because they now have ended up back in the present. It would be quite fun if we could just get... Even if it's just as a throwaway gag what Klaus's group looks like. How did his group contend with the fact that he disappeared? Because I know for a fact that when a, <laughs> from my own research, when a, when a charismatic leader of a new religious movement doesn't appear in public for a few years, stories get wild. <laughs> stories get really wild as to why this person hasn't been seen. And there's a lot of really heated discourses about what's happened to this person. Because if they believe that this person has a divine authority or a certain spiritual ability, if they've disappeared off the face of the earth, there's often an assumption made that they've disappeared for special reasons. So it would be really fun if we could get a glimpse of what happened to Klaus's group group if it hadn't completely died out because so many groups die out after the first gen. Um but I'm just envisioning a scene. If I was writing it, you could just have a really funny moment of a second or third gen member of Klaus's movement seeing him walking down the street now that he's back in the present. And, oh, he's returned. But I, oh, I that would be if, That would be fun. I wonder if somebody that far down the line would recognize him, though. Mm, I mean, I know that he, they would have had photos, potentially, and stuff and he like lo- that. he will look exactly the same as well, because but he's it, just been transported out to the 60s. But there is a certain amount of, like... Uh, not to bring it back to, like, what I do, but, like, mythologization no. that would happen. Yeah, 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 and, yeah, and yeah, sure. He would start to become greater than that image. In the sense where I don't know if he would then equate the image with the image or whether yeah, you would you wouldn't expect to see him in the supermarket buying a bottle of milk. Yeah, it's yeah, it, there's there's something he would be so much more than just what you would be looking at to the extent that I don't know if you would recognize that that's what you were looking at. Mm. That, that what you're tapping into there is really interesting because it suggests a shift in the charisma, doesn't it? It's because the charisma of the individual, I don't want to say it becomes mythologized because I have no doubt you would roast me for using that, but the charisma kind of takes on an entity of itself. Well, could it? Be- could the idea of Weber and maybe maybe this this is something we take off the air to then write, but um, like could the idea of Weber's routinization become rather than routinized in bureaucracy become routinized in story? Mm. Is that something yeah. people do? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. Well, what what you're saying there reminds me of what I was saying about um, th- the way Beth Singler um, 
framed it in terms of charisma of ideas. Yeah. So the ideas have charisma. So she uses the example of the ideas of L. Ron Hubbard has charisma. Um, but I guess what, what you're tapping into here is the charisma that comes about from discourse. People just talking about this mm. leader. It's not necessarily about his teaching. It's not necessarily about his... What he looked like. I'm I'm using gendered language here because I'm referring to Klaus. Yeah, we're talking about Klaus um, specifically as the example. So so it wouldn't be a case of that they remember Klaus's Destiny's Children lyrics or remembering what he looked like, but just the concept of Klaus. Yeah. And that the in some ways the story becomes like, I mean, if you think about it, it's a bad example because obviously, like, a photograph versus art, like, artistic renderings are two very different things. But if you mm. think about, like, iconography and, like, Catholicism, for example, if you saw someone who looked exactly like the Virgin Mary from one of those icons, I don't think you would go, oh, that person looks like the Virgin Mary. I wonder if that's them. Mm. Because mm. it's it's more than just a person. There's an artwork of him in the TV show. In his manner, there's a painting of him on the wall um, in his cult leader pose. So there's already yeah. art of him. Because he he becomes... He doesn't become a person. He becomes an icon in a narrative. Mm. Klaus is just a frame of mind, man. <laughs> <laughs> Klaus is a way of thinking. <laughs> But yeah, it's, it's absolutely right. It's, it's kind of like, I know this, this is a little bit of a daft comparison, but it's just what came to mind. It reminds me of those Christian Bale Batman films where he talks about Batman being an idea. Yeah, sure. So, so it's, it's, so. I like, I go to Catholicism and you go to Batman. It's, I go know, to Batman. Like... Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, isn't it obvious? But at the end of, I don't know if you've seen the um, Christopher Nolan Batman films. I've seen. A certain number. I can't remember how many. Well, at the end of the third one, not meaning to give too much away, um, but Bruce Wayne ceases to be Batman through a series of convoluted events. and But Batman continues because somebody else becomes Batman. And the point is, is that Batman was never about the person. It was about the symbol of justice. Now, as much as I like Batman, I do have to park my politics to one side to enjoy it because I do have a lot of problems politically <laughs> with the concept of Batman. But I, 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 I just really enjoy Batman. It's like so I'm just gonna... Banksy. Oh God, tell me about it. <laughs> I, I've actually got quite a few unpopular opinions about Banksy. I, I, I think a lot of, I think a lot of the points Banksy's try to make are actually kind of naff. Particularly, do you remember when Banksy shredded that painting? No, I, I, I know very little about Banksy, I'll be honest. Okay, so so Banksy, a Banksy painting was in a frame and was sold at auction. And the moment the final bid was made, it was made, you know, it sold for a couple of million or whatever, something absurd. Um, the moment the final building uh, um, bid was made, sold to the extremely wealthy person with far too much money, um... There's a whirring noise, and it turns out that the frame Banksy had put the painting in is a shredder, and people didn't know. And then the painting goes down through the frame, through the shredder, and he's shredded the painting that somebody's just bought. 
And oh man, it was so brilliant because, oh yeah, it was a critique of consumerism and it was pointing out how absurd it is that people voted this money. And I'm just sat there thinking, uh, no, that painting is now even more valuable because of the process <laughs> it's just been through. And it was, because obviously what happened, it got on the news. It was on the BBC News homepage. It was discussed on Twitter. I didn't even know that a Banksy painting was being sold that evening, but I knew the next day because there was that publicity stunt. This, that frame is now part of the artwork. Before it was shredded, that frame was just what the artwork was held in. But that frame is now part of the artwork because it's more than just a painting now. It's a performance piece, isn't it? He, that so was a performance piece. What so you're saying the is shredded that... <laughs> bits and the frame are now more valuable than what the painting originally was. So he's just played into the hands of what he's attempting to critique, isn't he? So what you're saying is that Banksy's points are the equivalent of using 90s lyrics to convey death. Yes, yes. <laughs> it, it's just, when it happened, I just thought this really isn't... Um, if, if you're listening and you thought it was brilliant, fine, you know, you feel free to disagree with me on this. But I Send us an email, religionpopculturepod yeah, at gmail.com. How absurd my opinion on this is. But to me, it it, it just looked completely counterintuitive. That painting is now more valuable because it's the painting that got shredded. doesn't matter if it's in shreds. It's not about the quality. That's the thing with a lot of art, uh, particularly art that people collect. It's not about the quality. It's about the value prescribed to it. Apologies to Banksy, who may or may not be listening. But also, um, I I think that I unfortunately already wound up Alan ready to pounce and complain about things because I think we listened to about a 20 minute rant about the Santa Claus and the ethical implications therein prior to hitting record, which I do regret not having recorded. Maybe that should be our Christmas special. We should. Maybe we'll do that. The the, the philosophy and ethics of Tim Allen's The Santa Claus. (laughs) Um, it, it's a, it's a right, but that, that's, but it, it's one, it is wonderful when you can take a, a examples of pop culture and have these conversations, um, because I, I, I feel like it's, it was a really useful way of unpacking that Trump situation. Mm-hmm. I, I do wonder when it comes to particularly, I mean, generally with with academic works but specifically with Weber, because you might know a bit more about it. Um, I find that people either grab it and use it, or say it doesn't fit this thing and get rid. I don't know if there's enough people who take something and say, well, let's change it. Mm. Yeah, I try to find a balance, because I'm, I'm not one of those scholars who does theory for the sake of theory. And if you're listening and you do love you, do just talk about theory. Great, I'm not criticizing. It's it's just a different approach. I like to apply things. So what does this theory tell us about the world we live in, or how do we apply this theory to? Because you know Weber's ideas are now very old, mm-hmm. very dated, and there's no way that he or um, other founding figures of anthropology and sociology could predict. You know, they spent a lot of time predicting. But I, I think just the internet alone is yeah. something that was beyond their comprehension. And that's why I think routinization doesn't stack up. I, that's why I personally don't think routinization stacks up um, 
entirely in online spaces because it's changed the way people interact with one another. Yeah, but I guess I guess my point is can can you take something like routinization and change how it's being routinized and then it still stands? I think so because that that doesn't mean that I think it's completely irrelevant. There's lots of examples of how there's still routinization in different modern well, spaces. Yeah. Oh, yeah, postmodern Post postmodern. Post, where post, are we post, now? Postmodern. Yeah, where, where are we now? I lose track. I think. <laughs> I think by the time you start, by the time you start saying post post, you need another name for things. Uh. Weren't you once a post post structuralist? Or well, did you my have a better argument is that a lot of post structuralists are just structuralists. Um, but that's oh, a whole post structuralist hipster. <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole other argument. Well, it's because a lot of people, a lot of the arguments about structuralism that then post structuralists started doing, it was like, no, you just didn't understand structuralism, and now you're doing structuralism, saying it's post structuralism because you just didn't understand what structuralism was. I, I you know, I, I'm kind of glad to hear you say that because I remember reading about structuralism, post structuralism. I'm, I'm, I should say, ago. for people listening, I'm mostly talking about post-structuralist and structuralist anthropology because that's what yeah, I yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. When there's yeah, this yeah. term, these terms are used across the board in a lot of different instances. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I yeah. don't know about architecture or like no, art no, or no, anything no, no. like that. I'm purely talking about anthropology. I, I remember years ago when I was familiarizing myself with the literature around this. There, there, there were a few moments where. I was reading about oh, and then you know, post structuralism does this, and I, and I was reading it, thinking, but but isn't that what yeah. the structuralists were trying to? Do? Wasn't that the point originally? And am I not getting something? Yeah, here? like the whole so Bordeaux. This is going to go down a whole rabbit hole. I'm sorry for people who are really interested in Klaus. Well, and you is now getting a lecture in post structuralism. No, you know this more than I do. But um, so. Pierre Bordeaux, for example, is is cited a lot as a, as an ideal. Like that's a post structuralist. His idea of the habitus is structure. And the way that he saw the habitus functioning is the way that, say, Levi Strauss, for example, understood structural categorizations in culture. And so in my Mm -hmm. head, it's like, I mean, it's slightly different. Um, I think Levi Strauss was quite limited. I mean, I'm I'm a Levi Strauss apologist, but uh, he was quite limited in what he understood as structure being able to fit, for example. He sometimes saw it as very like, oh, um language is the ultimate and everything else is kind of secondary, which I think is bullshit. But like, but basically habitus is just structure. And then Mary Douglas is sometimes understood as a structuralist and sometimes understood as a post-structuralist because she's basically a structuralist. Her whole idea of, of the natural symbols, the whole idea of (coughs) Mm. um, the notion of taboo and purity and danger, it's all structure. Mm. It's all categorizations and structures. So, yeah, I, you know, so I, I Mm. argue against it a lot, but that's, that's a whole nother conversation. Do we Uh, sometimes, (laughs) do we sometimes find that we are going around in circles too much about terminology at times? Well, yes, which is why I tended to just ignore whenever it was like, well, I'm talking about structuralism, but I'll talk about Bordeaux because his ideas fit what I'm talking about. Um, Because I was, I was hammering out some ideas the other day um, for the cult project I'm working on about limitations. I love the idea of being like, I'm working on a cult project. Thanks. Um, Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm busy with my cult. (laughs) Um, But 
you know, I've mentioned before, I don't like the term new religious movement, but ultimately my problem was just with the word religion and particularly its roots in colonialism. Mm. That I, I just had this moment of frustration while I was hammering these notes out. I just thought, oh, well, let's, let's just do away with religion. <laughs> because we're spending all this time talking about terminology. And uh, terminology is obviously a very important way to understand the way that people categorize their lives and navigate through their lives but I, I mean this from an academic perspective yeah that sometimes we are distracting ourselves from just understanding what's happening in the world by being like oh but does it is it really a religion is it really not a religion and they say that <laughs> you're talking yeah, to the wrong this, person i'm yeah, saying they're writing PhDs. every every yeah well every, everything is a religion right so i so and then i just end up thinking well who cares ultimately if this is a religion or if it's not a religion and I, I was thinking about this particularly in t- I was thinking about this in terms of cults and new religions whatever you want to call them these things exist these people exist and they are doing what they're doing let's study that so in uh, in those clips and stuff okay um alan only just noticed that i have a tattoo um i, right, I will okay. we will talk about it after this yeah, um okay but uh Sorry, I can't remember. Right, so in Sorry, those clips I, I, that I was I'm looking at... I completely derailed our conversation <laughs> So I, I had to say something because I was like, it's so weird. Um, you didn't tell me. I didn't know. I got it like two months t- ago. Um, I Yeah, it shows how much you pay attention to me, right? Okay, it definitely wasn't two months ago because I'm sorry, dear listeners, but within the last two months, you've told me you were considering a tattoo. It was, I think that, I got it in September. I'll have to look at my you? calendar again, but I'm pretty sure I got it in September. Oh my gosh, time is meaningless. Okay, sorry, yeah, we'll talk so, about it anyway, in a moment. You were um, about to make a really important point. So, in those clips with Klaus, um, yes. there was, there was a, I think it was when he met back up with Allison, and she was making some comment about the cult, and he, he, and there's a couple of scenes where he kept being like, a cult is a negative word, it's not a cult, and he kept kind of it's doing It's an alternative spiritual community. <laughs> and it, which is funny, especially because I'm, I'm hearing you say those things rather than yeah. Klaus, because that's what you would do. Um, yeah. But in my head, there was this point of it, when you were talking about, you know, what does it matter, that it is that thing of it's like, so if someone came in who's a sociologist of religion, you're in the 60s, you're studying Klaus's cult, or the remnants of Klaus's cult now, I don't know. Hmm. You're looking at it. If if it's a cult, if it's not a cult, if they're saying they're a religion, or if they're saying they're a philosophy, what does it fucking matter? Like, they're they're, they're doing things, and that's what's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> And, and and it's important to note here, we're making this point from an academic perspective. For everyday people, being described, having your religion described as a cult and so on can have very yeah, yeah, serious no, what consequences. Yeah, what I more meant was that it, I think I've always, as a, as a scholar, I've always followed the definitions and the ideas that the people I'm studying are using. Yeah, absolutely. Because it doesn't matter to me. If they're saying I'm not a religion, then I go, okay, cool. Like, what is that? What do I care? I'm isn't still it, isn't here it and I'm still that, interested. Yeah, isn't it interesting that they say that? Like... Yeah, like that sort I, of thing. I remember getting into um I I was trying to write an article once on Christian science back when I was studying Christian science, which is not Scientology for people listening. Uh they get confused sometimes. But um yeah, they do. I, I think just because Christian science is science in the title. Yeah. But I I in, in sorry to interrupt you, but this is just um while while it's on my mind. I once when I was in school I had a friend who was an edgy atheist. Who on his? Do you remember MySpace profiles used to have a religion section? He had Scientology in his religion section because he thought it meant believing in science. 
Sorry. Oh, that, that just occurred to me. You were saying. So um, anyway, for Christian scientists, many Christian scientists, I'm sure there are some outliers, but many Christian scientists see Christian science as one of the branches of Christianity. It is a form of Christianity. Um, hmm. Like Baptist is a form of Christianity, like Methodist is. It was a form of Christianity. So when I was writing about it and I was doing it, I referred to it as a form of Christianity. And I got knocked for that. Because other people said, well, no, it's not a form of Christianity because Christians wouldn't agree with the fact that it's a form of Christianity. Which my point of view is, it doesn't fucking matter. I'm sorry, no, I swear. It doesn't no, matter. N- <laughs> no, it doesn't. And, oh, oh, that per- that perception really annoys me because it comes back to the idea of, say, a good Buddhist or a bad Buddhist. Or exactly. A good Christian it's that or a bad of... Christian. Well, it's just like, well, those are just individual And I was sat there. My whole, my whole work that I was doing, which I ended up never publishing, but it was all a study of the structure of their um so on and not on sundays but on a different day they'll give testimony about their their day it's a very quaker thing um but a christian science version of it where it's all silent and then they'll stand up and they'll talk about if the spirit takes them of this was my experience and it's typically healing narratives i was i was studying the structure of these healing narratives so if they're christian or if they're not christian that doesn't change the idea that i'm studying (laughs) the structure of, of these healing narratives so, uh, yeah, it's, it, you know, but it, it goes back to that. If it's this idea of people are, are so tied up into these, these terminologies what, of cult what, what or I not find... cult or religion or not religion. And really, it comes down to what people yeah. are saying and, and what they're doing is interesting. So who cares about how they, you know, set it up? I mean, I, I, I care about the... how they set it up, but you know what I mean? Like, I, I've, I've had the exact same response to my work on free zone Scientology because free zone Scientology is seen as heretics and not actual Scientologists by the Church of Scientology. And part of that is because L. Ron Hubbard had an official document policy that said people shouldn't do Scientology outside of the Church. Um, and my, my work was once reviewed by a former Scientologist online um, who said that my approach was flawed because these people aren't Scientologists, because Scientology is, as L. Ron Hubbard said, Scientology within the church. That's clearly what it is. So they're not actually... And I just found that really interesting, because he's an ex-member, completely rejects Scientology, spends a lot of his time talking about Mm -hmm. how much he rejects Scientology, which is fine. Um, But he still clearly puts value in... L. Ron Hubbard's lines between what's a Scientologist and what isn't a Scientologist mm-hmm. because he criticised my work for framing these people as Scientologists when they're not because L. Ron Hubbard would say they're not. Well, I'm sorry Just to take us down really a, a terminology rabbit hole about well, which started with which, an argument about structuralism. Um, which, which started with us saying that terminology doesn't matter and now we're saying that it is. But <laughs> Well, I, I think that it, it matters to the people and that's where it should be echoed is is when and how it matters to the people that you're talking about um and if like i mean i i started with a post-structuralist structuralist which no one cares about that uh so so like that really shouldn't that really shouldn't matter at all but is uh, back back to klaus but i thought that was really it was a fun little moment when i was i was watching those clips because again i i could hear basically all of my new religious movement studies friends in klaus's responses back it to is, people yeah, calling it, it a cult, was, which was very fun. So if yeah, you are interested, viewers it, or listeners, in, in watching it, I'm sure you'll hear Alan's voice in each one of those responses. Well, uh, yeah, in, in, in this uh, 
in this chapter I'm writing, we have got a bit that says something like, oh, there are a variety of terms used, like emergent religions, minority religions, alternative... I should add alternative spiritual community in sight, Klaus. You should. That's that's the new term. It's, it's, it's actually not bad. It's a pretty good term. As, as far as terminology goes, given that it's just meant to be a joke about him not being willing to admit that he started a cult. Um, but yeah. Okay, well, I'm noticing that we've been speaking for a while, so I'm thinking we should. <laughs> yeah, wrap I'm this sorry up. that I took us off track quite a few times. No, but... I think no, 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 because I think I think it was a I think it was a really rich conversation, and it showed the different avenues that you can explore using pop culture. Um, so, Vivian, if people want to come and talk to you about your um, Levi Strauss apologism. <laughs> Where, they, where can they find you? You can find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Vivian Asimos on both of those. And you can go to my website, incidentalmythology.com, where there's very small hints of Levi Straussism that is being put there without me actually referencing him. Go um, and get your fix of this <laughs> undercover so Levi Strauss it. agent. Um, and also just a quick note, if you are interested in chatting with us a little bit about what your thoughts are on several of our episodes going in, in just a couple of weeks, we're going to be recording our finale episode and in that we're going to be going through um, some uh, emails and tweets and stuff like that that we've received over the course of the season. I've been reading a couple of them and there's been some really fun ones that I've been able to read through. So definitely be sending those through. You can send it to religionpopculturepod at gmail.com or you can reach to us out on Twitter at rpc underscore pod. And of course you can reach out to each of us separately as well. Sorry, Alan, if people want to reach out to you separately or they want to talk Very... to you about My Chemical Romance and Gerard Way, where can they go? Oh, come and talk to me about My Chemical Romance and Gerard Way on Twitter at Thomas. I um, I saw My Chemical Romance a few months ago. I was down at the front. Um, thanks to the fact that, funny story, it's not a funny story at all, it was really painful for her, but my wife broke her ankle back in May and... Um, we went to see My Chemical Romance a few weeks later and she was in a wheelchair, bless her. And because she was in a wheelchair, they just let us skip the entire queue. They just let us into the venue. So that's how we ended up at the front of a My Chemical Romance concert, which I've I've never, you know, I've seen them live five times now, but I've never been at the front. And it was, oh, oh it was magic. It was magic. I, Come and talk to me about that on Twitter. That I is do great. want to say a quick note because I want this on the air because I wasn't sure whether or not I'll read it out on the finale episode. But there was a lovely listener sent us a couple of notes on a couple of the episodes. But there was one where um, apparently I mentioned the Flowbots in the uh, American Idiot episode. And they have seen the Flowbots live recently. So the joy of cool. doing this podcast is that I get cool. random messages talking about the Flowbots, which I would have never, yeah. I would have never figured that that would be... <laughs> How does it go? I can run my bike with no handlebars. No, handlebar. no handlebars. Yeah, anyway. yeah good times. I always love a handlebars. So anyway, oh. that's, that's but talk to me about Flowbots. I'm down can, for yeah, it. Yeah, talk to Vivian about Flowbots. Come and talk to us about um, alternative punk movements. That's great. And uh, we shall catch you very soon with our next discussion, which will be on, what's it going to be on, Vivian? Did we decide? Uh, We do. Well, it depends on whether or not you play a certain video game. In time. Oh, well, t- tell you what, I haven't actually spent my monthly gaming budget, so I'll get it this weekend. Okay, get it this weekend, and then we will be talking okay. about a certain cultish video game. We'll have a, we'll oh, have a cult, perfect. A cult oh, full November. Yes. We've got creepy October and culty November. 
Cult in November. So yeah, that's my bread and butter, baby. Uh, so we'll catch you soon where we will be uh, discussing a game of a culty nature. Yeah. See you soon. Bye. Bye.